Luke 24, one, verses 1 through 8. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, when women, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like this, or sorry, <laughs> Um, while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how, you, how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The son of man must be delivered over to the hands of the sinner, be crucified, and on the third day, be raised again, then they remembered his words. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, everybody. It's another beautiful Resurrection Sunday here on the Festival of Easter, as it's traditionally been called. I trust that everybody that was able to attend our Good Friday gatherings in our homes were moved deeply. And then Holy Saturday, yesterday, just sitting in the silence of the grave, and then today, the great celebration with all of God's people and all of the church throughout the globe and throughout history around the resurrection of Jesus. And so I love Easter. We've got all the little rats in the house today with us, all the little kids, and so it's rambunctious. There's tons of donuts out there. We have, as far as I know, we have one baptism this morning, and so that's just going to be beautiful. The, the 99, the one has, gone, uh, has come back home to the fold and so the angels are rejoicing tonight as we're going to baptize Emma. And as I'm teaching today or preaching, consider being baptized if you have not yet been baptized. We have extra uh, shirts and towels. Yes, we do? Okay, good. Would you join me in praying? And uh, I'm going to try to keep this to 25 minutes. You guys ready for this? I'm going to talk so fast. Let's pray. There's just nothing like the festivals of Easter, the festivals of resurrection. These are but precursors. These are a parting of the curtain, the donuts, the coffee, the smiles. All of us clothed in righteousness, dressed up for the king. It's just a, it's a, it's a, it's a beginning of what will be in the end fully. Joy, pure joy. And I pray that this Easter, those who come broken, weary, and worn out would find a new joy, a new life. I pray for those who have drifted from you, Jesus, deconstructing, uncertain, doubting, that today, just by your spirit, not even by rational reasoning or by intellect, but by your spirit, may they know and experience themselves as so loved and cherished and cared for. I pray for those who have dip their toe back into the church here because it's Easter and you're supposed to go to church, but they have so many wounds. Oh God, would you heal? I pray for those who've been dragged here by friend or family member, that today they would hear the good news of the gospel, that there is a God and that God cares and that God was crucified in our place and is alive now. And for all of us, I ask Jesus that your spirit would invigorate and embolden us more and more in these last days as we await your return. Make us a strange people, 
fools for Jesus. Willing, Lord, to lay down our lives as living sacrifices because you laid down your life for us and we will live forever in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. Have you guys ever had one of those things that you've forgotten? And then when you remember it, it just completely changes your whole day. Like you go and you put on your pair of jeans and you put your hand in your pocket like, 20 bucks? Yes, 20 bucks. This is going to be the best day ever. That happens to me all the time. Every single day, I lose my keys. And when I find my keys, it's a miracle. You can ask anyone in my family. It's such a joyful celebration every single day. Where are my keys? I found them. Praise God. My 36th birthday was one of the most pointed moments of forgetting something. And after I remembered it, it radically changed my entire day and my entire year. Somewhere around age 25, I began to have this awareness that I was halfway to a certain age. So at 25, I woke up and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm halfway to 50. And at 30, I was like, good grief, I'm halfway to 60. Can you believe it? At 45, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm halfway to 90. I'm officially in the back nine, as they say colloquially within our culture. (laughs) But my 36th birthday, it was a really, really profound moment for me because somehow, some way, I'm a theologian, not a mathematician. All that year, I had gotten stuck in my head that the math was halfway to 74 instead of halfway to 72. And so my, my 36th birthday rolls around and I wake up that morning somewhat morose, a little bit laid back. Lex, can you believe it? Halfway to 74. I'm 37 years old today. Now my wife, as she often has to do, looks at me and tries to discern, is he joking? I'm just going to ignore him if he's just joking. Or do I need to start doing damage control? He's pretty serious. She realized I was being totally serious, and she just started cracking up, which wounded my fragile ego even more. Dan, you are not 37. You're turning 36 today. I literally, for an entire year, had convinced myself that I was turning 37, and upon remembering reality that I was only 36, I shot out of bed. It's a birthday miracle! I'm only halfway to 72. That's not even close to 75. I've got a whole life in front of me. And for the rest of that year, I'm not kidding. I just walked through my day with a skip in my step. I'm 36 years old. I'm not 37 years old. Man. Listen, each of us as humans, we are psychological puzzles. And the way that we live into our world, it is such a roller coaster, especially if you're like me. I live everything big. My downs are really down, and my highs are really high. The narratives that govern our experiences, they are so powerful, the stories that we tell ourselves. And when we forget key truths, we don't live into reality as we should. Now, Christians of all people on this planet, we live in a reality that is shaped by forces that should create in us unceasing joy and radical hope. We believe, we believe that the creator of the universe loves us unconditionally. We believe that he cares for us, that he accepts us. We believe that this creator is not some distant God who has just spun things out in a mechanistic way, but that he is attentive and he is personal to our needs and to our wants. And we believe that he is working even the worst things in the moments of our lives 
for ultimate good, that should shape a reality for us where we have a skip in our step every day, a smile on our face, no matter the degree of suffering that we are enduring. In contrast to those things that we believe, when we forget those key truths, our outlook on life loses its luster, to say the least. The Church of Jesus Christ has always suffered from an acute collective amnesia. And this amnesia, it wrecks our hopes, and it diminishes our outlooks, and it warps the reality in which we live. And so our Easter passage that Leah read for us this morning is ground zero and case in point of this collective acute amnesia of the people of God. During Jesus Christ's ministry, he over and over and over and over and over in all four of the Gospels either implies or explicitly said to his disciples at least three times in the synoptics very clearly, I am going to die. And three days later, I am going to rise from the grave. And it was just like wah-wah-wah-wah-wah-wah-wah in the disciples' ears. I am going to die. And three days later, I am going to rise from the grave alive. It did not register with his followers as real. Because just like you and I, unlike what many moderns believe about ancient peoples, they did not easily believe that dead people raised from the dead. That did not make sense to them as much as it does not make sense to us. And so as Jesus would say over and over and over, I am going to die and I am going to rise from the dead, his followers unconsciously categorized his words as probably just another one of Jesus's cryptic lessons, you know, his parables. He says some weird stuff sometimes that we don't understand. He's certainly not foretelling a future literal physical event. Just couldn't be the case. So he's crucified, capitally punished by the Roman Empire. He is buried in a tomb. And like you and I, there is no assumption that he would be rising from that grave. So three days later, rather than them going to the tomb, maybe with a little bit of anticipation, a little bit of hope, a little bit of excitement, they go, having been utterly devastated by the death of their friend and their king. The death of Jesus Christ for the disciples of the first century represented the death of their hopes, the death of their joy the death of their meaning and purpose. Now, the angels that meet the women at the tomb, the angels are somewhat incredulous. We know from the New Testament that angels are very curious about us as humans. This interface between heaven and earth, this mixing of metaphysical and physical, the angels are always on tippy toes watching us little dirt clods in whom God has breathed breath going, wow, what a curious lot they are. They just don't get it. How strangely they act. They simply cannot see reality for what it is. So the women come to the tomb devastated by the death of their friend. All their hopes are gone. And the angels are a little bit snarky with them. What are you guys doing here? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Luke 24, 5 to 7. He's not here. He's risen. He told you he was going to rise. And he's alive. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. This chronic collective amnesia of the church, it requires continual reminder from our first century brothers and sisters right here to you and I today in late modern Western San Diego. We need to rehear the angels' questions week by week, especially on Easter Sunday. Because the Spirit comes and he asks every single one of us this morning, hey, hey, 
What are you doing? Are you living into the reality of this? He is alive. Have you forgotten that absolutely everything has changed in this universe for you personally and throughout the entirety of the cosmos? Don't you remember he was crucified for you? And on the third day, he rose from the grave. Three points of remembrance. I've got 22 minutes to get this done. And that would make it a 30-minute teaching. Five minutes over. Three points of remembrance to celebrate this Easter morning. Remember the resurrection really happened. Remember what precedes resurrection. Remember what it has accomplished. Remember the resurrection really happened. Remember what precedes resurrection. Remember what it has accomplished. I must say this first point, remember the resurrection really happened. This morning is my 25th Easter as a Christian. My 25th Easter, quarter century of doing these things. And more than ever, the reality of the resurrection is shocking to me. I was telling my wife this morning on the way to church that not being raised in the church at all, I had no clue what Easter was. Growing up, I just knew that you chased eggs. Even when I got into high school, my family had no religious background. I did not know what any of this was. And my first Easter, I wept like a baby because I believed the resurrection really happened. And every succeeding year, I have been shocked by the somewhat stupor of the church as we sit on Easter Sunday mornings worried about frivolous things when the resurrection really happened. It's confusing how the disciples walked and talked with Jesus and they could forget his words so easily, but maybe you and I are a little more justified just to, you know, for the sake of easing our consciences. We are thousands of years removed and multiple cultures and languages removed from the actual events And we moderns, we are saturated in the scientific worldview. Unless it's testable and retestable, well, it's probably not real. Yet even with those factors at play, thousands of years removed, multiple cultures and languages, scientific mind frame, listen, our forgetfulness as the church is naive at best and it is intellectually dishonest at worst. The resurrection happened. These aren't myths, these aren't legends, these aren't fanciful stories of uneducated fringe ancient people. Listen, every one of us must wrestle with this. Something happened 2,000 years ago. There is no historian worth their salt that does not say these people claim to have seen the risen Jesus and an empty tomb verified by eyewitnesses that led to the explosion and the expansion of the church in the first century. So we moderns will justify and we'll say, well, you know, they just made it up. The Bible's not reliable If that's you, just a few things for you to consider here in this first point. The resurrection really happened. Number one, the people who bore witness to the resurrection, they were the least likely to be listened to. Now, this is somewhat counterintuitive, so track with me. We're going to be in our brains, and then we'll get to our hearts for the back end of this. The people who originally bear witness to the empty tomb and the resurrection of Jesus counterintuitively point to the veracity of the story, telling us that the likelihood of the story being made up just doesn't rationally make sense. Here's why. If you are going to make up a story about seeing a UFO, you probably, if you wanted to convince people, I've seen a UFO and I have witnesses, the first witness that you would call on probably wouldn't be the guy on the corner suffering from delusions, correct? No, because everybody would say the witness that you've brought forth is suffering from delusions. We don't believe your account. Instead, you would do like we did in 2020. You guys remember the UFO sightings? Who cited them? Navy pilots. Highly trained, acute eyesight human beings. So when people said Navy pilots saw UFOs, we were like, "Mm mm-hmm, it's real. It's real. I told you, it's real. 
Navy pilots. Okay, everybody got that piece? The type of characters that the gospel authors used to cite as their first witness were women. Going to get a little bit offensive here for a moment. We're thousands of years and multiple cultures removed from the days of Jesus. They were women. Women bore witness to the resurrection first. And in their culture, a woman's testimony was not only devalued, it was entirely discounted. It was rejected wholesale. It was considered delusional. Aulus Cornelius Celsus was a Roman writer and philosopher. He lived about 80 years after Jesus. We only have snippets and tatterings of his work, but he wrote a very scathing critique of ancient Christianity called The True Doctrine, trying to refute Christianity. He wrote from a pagan perspective. And one of Celsus's primary arguments was, listen, the resurrection can't be real because the first witnesses that we have were women. And we all know that women under stressful situations become hysterical and detached, to which all of the culture of his day went, mm-hmm, yep, mm-hmm, discounted. And so we have to ask ourselves, if this was made up, why would the gospel authors choose witnesses that would be considered delusional from the very beginning? The most disrespective, least heard voices making this up. Why would they do that? The only explanation that has made sense to me over these many decades now of studying and thinking about this is that it was actually women that spoke first and they were writing down an account of what actually happened. And despite the disregard for women as witnesses, the story in the church exploded and grew exponentially from their disrespected and disaccounted for words. Absolutely incredible. By the way, that was also the beginnings. Everybody needs to hear this. Regardless of what you think about the church, it was Western thought based on Christianity that gave rise to women's suffrages, equal rights. This is an entire series of teachings that we should do someday. Number two, if the story was made up, it was a collaboration on an impossible scale, period. It takes a lot of faith to believe that this many people collaborated to make this story up. Multitudes of eyewitnesses viewed the empty tomb. They said they saw him alive. Now, the New Testament documents that we have, they list actual eyewitnesses. And then they put the names of the eyewitnesses into those documents. Matthew, Luke, John, Paul, the apostle. They put names and geographical locations into the witnesses and to the accounts that they wrote so that the readers would be able to say within the lifetime of these documents being written, I'm going to track down so-and-so that lives in this place and I'm going to ask them, did you see this? Does that all make sense? The eyewitnesses were able to verify. And here's the deal, friends. There were many, many, many. There were multitudes of Messiah movements in first century Palestine. There was more than one Jesus who rose up and said, I'm the king, I'm the Messiah. There were hundreds of them. And all of them were disavowed and executed by the Roman Empire. And their movements died with them, except for Jesus. Because Jesus was seen and the eyewitness accounts were verified. If Jesus was still dead, somewhere along the line, one of the eyewitnesses would have been able to not verify that they had seen him, and the movement would have died, and the grave would still be full of his body. Number three, and this is the biggest one for me over these many years. The resurrection really happened, and I know it. I believe it with all my heart, because the people that first saw it would rather die than say that they hadn't seen the risen Jesus. You, my friend, have to wrestle with that. No matter how skeptical you are, you need to ask why did these people die for what they said they saw? Now, you may say, what about people that die for, they fly airplanes into towers? 
Those are in attack mode processes. This was a defense of people who would have never said Jesus is alive, dying. They were the ones dying passively, not suicidally. I said this last year. This is such an incredible story about Simon Greenleaf. He helped to put the Harvard Law School on the map, and he wrote a treatise on uh, the law of evidence. It's one of the most famous works from Harvard in the world of law. It's still regarded as one of the most outstanding works on establishing legal evidence. And Greenleaf believed that the resurrection of Jesus was a legend. And so three of his law students who were Christians challenged him to apply his rules of evidence to the resurrection account. Greenleaf accepted the student's challenge. And at the end of this, he found himself unable to explain, he found himself unable to explain the change in the behavior of these first century apocalyptic Jews. He, he could not explain how a people with a worldview this way changed so drastically and then went on to die for what they said they believed, sometimes in torturous, horrific ways. Greenleaf said the only way that they would have done this is if they actually saw what they said they saw. There is, Greenleaf would say, more evidence for the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ than for just about any other event in history. <laughs> Just, just wrestle with it this morning, friends. Either wrestle with it or revel in it. If you've already tipped over the edge rationally where you're like, I can't go back from this now. He's alive. Just learn to revel in it. Shake in your boots because he is alive. It's real. It makes me tremble every time I get through the intellectual processes. It gets me back to this is why I cannot not be a Christian. It just, nothing else makes sense of this whole thing. So much more to be said. I have 10 minutes. Let's go. Remember what precedes resurrection. Remember what precedes resurrection. Let's get to our hearts. Little parting of the curtain in my prayer life for you all. I have prayed Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 to 21, St. Paul's prayer from the great book of Ephesians. I've prayed it daily now for many, many years. And in that prayer, St. Paul asks that we as God's people, that we would know God's incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. I have prayed through that prayer hundreds of times at this point in my life. And some weeks ago, I was literally stopped in my tracks and I was stuck. I just began praying, Lord, what would it look like for neighbors, for my family to know and experience herself in real resurrection power? What would it look like if our family actually knew herself and experienced herself as walking in the power that raised Jesus from the dead? How, where, what is the block for us, Father? What is keeping us from experiencing that outpouring of resurrection power? And the Spirit very clearly said to me, to know resurrection power, to experience resurrection power, death must precede it. Death always precedes resurrection. Without death, there is no resurrection power. Friends, remember the resurrection happened, but then we have to remember what precedes the resurrection and why the resurrection had to happen. Everything changes when we remember it, that suffering and death, they are necessary components in our journey to resurrection power in this life and in the next. In this broken world of suffering and pain and death, all of that is the result of sin. We cannot forget that. But God uses those things the very things, suffering and pain and death, to form our souls and to prepare us to live and rule and serve and love his creation, just like Jesus for all of eternity. Let me just elaborate on this point for just a moment. When we forget the resurrection, we forget that sin and death rule in this world. 
And we forget that sin and death necessitated Jesus' death and resurrection. Without the resurrection, most of us, as late modern Western, very comfortable, very affluent Christians, it's like we're surprised by suffering. It's like we stub our toe with suffering. Like, oh, how did that happen? And it's so overwhelming. We're surprised by suffering. We're upset about hardships and injustices and failures and unmet expectations and lost dreams when we forget the resurrection because we're forgetting what precedes the resurrection, which is a broken world full of horrific sin and terrible satanic influence. But when we remember that sin and brokenness and death all necessarily precede real resurrection power, then we begin to view our own hardships and struggles and points of suffering as opportunities for what Jesus said was a cross-carrying moment to carry our own crosses, to die to ourselves, to become more like him. And these little mini deaths are preparing for us personal resurrections in this life, literally unto eternal life upon our physical deaths. I just want a couple other thoughts on this. Think of it this way. The anxiety that is so rampant in our society right now. For the Christian, when you remember the resurrection, anxiety is an opportunity for you to die to your need for control. That's all anxiety is. We don't need to over-therapize this. You are anxious because you want to control the universe. I am anxious because I want to twist the dials of the universe to fit my plan. But when anxiety rises up with the resurrection in mind, okay, this is a necessary preceding death that I might resurrect in deeper trust in my God. I trust in his will. And out of that resurrects a true self that's at rest in God's wisdom. Our failures, of which I have had many, those are opportunities for me to die to what my flesh says success is. And in that moment of death, this is not success. This is my flesh lying to me. What rises out of that is a Dan who hears the applause of God And here's my father delighting in me, and my success is in surrendering to him. Our sufferings become opportunities for us to die to what we defined as the good life. When suffering comes, and it will in a broken and wounded and sin-filled world, then that is opportunity when we remember the resurrection for us to die to what we defined as the good life and rise up in union as we suffer with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, learning to do what Jesus did in the way that Jesus did it. Our struggles are opportunities for us to die to our lack of discipline and resist temptation, to rise up resurrected in greater obedience. And those humiliating times, those are opportunities for the false self to be put on the cross with Jesus, to die to the standards of the world, and then to rise up in the fear of the Lord for his glory alone. Do you see this? This is why St. Peter said, don't be surprised when you're suffering a fiery trial. It's a broken world. Jesus had to die for it and resurrect. And now you're being made in his image so that you will rule like him in all of eternity. These many deaths... They're all preparation for our death that will lead to eternal life. If we don't remember the resurrection and what precedes the resurrection, then all we have in this life is the clamoring for comforts and power and pleasure, striving and worrying for it, worrying about it. Without the resurrection, pain and loss and suffering, they have absolutely no meaning. It's just awful. But with the resurrection, we know everything is preparing us for an eternal existence where we will rule and reign alongside Jesus. Remembering that hardships and unmet expectations and lost dreams and points of suffering and humiliation necessarily are preceding your true resurrection, many resurrections in this life, unto true resurrection into eternal life is so important. And it's the only thing that makes sense out of the most ludicrous statements in all the Bible. 
As I said, I had no church background. And when I began reading the New Testament authors, I was like, these people are crazy. The brother of Jesus, James, would say, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever everything's just going so awesome for you because you're blessed. Hashtag blessed. It's just not what he says. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many times. Kinds, why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work. Look to the cross. Look to the resurrection that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Paul, Paul was completely insane. The guy was so off of his rocker. We glory in our sufferings, he would say, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Paul would say, I'm glad to be in this prison because in this prison I'm being shaped like Jesus and I resurrect daily in my dependence upon him. He would tell the Corinthians about the suffering that he endured. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Remember the resurrection. Remember that what precedes it right now is pain and suffering as you are formed in Jesus. Don't be surprised by it. Embrace it. Rejoice in it. And rise. Rise. Remember what resurrection has accomplished. Number three, and we're done. Everything. Everything you want right now, everything, every perennial longing, every insecurity, every point of pain, every hope for provision, every ache, every wound, every need for acceptance, every hope for a like, every look from that fella, from that gal, every single thing that you are longing for, it has been accomplished, finished, fully given through the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead. When Jesus came out of the tomb, he inaugurated what you and I will be in full. Friends, this is more than finding 20 bucks in your jeans pocket. We have to remember every second of our lives what our king accomplished for us at the resurrection. He has inaugurated, and this will be up on the screens for you, the resurrection has inaugurated God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Eternal life is yours now. You are living eternal life today in him forever, learning how to reign, learning how to rule. Forgiveness. I recognize in this modern moment, concepts of guilt and shame are to be taken care of on a therapist's couch. And it's not working for any of us, is it? I realize using the language of malevolence and evil well, does that really exist? And it certainly does. And we are perpetrators. The perennial longing of your heart this morning is to know that your guilt for wrongdoing is gone. And your shame, that sense that you are wrong, has been washed clean and you are right. The resurrection of Jesus has accomplished that. You don't need to strive or work or labor any longer to justify your existence, to make sure that the world knows you're somebody, to make yourself acceptable. You are forgiven. And Jesus, through the cross and the resurrection, has absorbed all the sin done to you. This is the great power of Christianity. The wounds that have been inflicted upon you by sin were taken into Jesus and conquered by the resurrection. All wrongs are being made right in this world right now unto the day of his coming. Restoration of righteous judgment. One day, every single thing that you and I watch on our news feeds where we say, that's wrong, it will be completely judged, and the resurrection is the beginning of that. 
Reconciliation to God, we are no longer separated. Restoration of God's power, you no longer need to strategize and figure out how to do these things in your flesh. You pray, you rest, you receive, you obey, you rise. And then finally, victory over, sorry, that's my typo, not victory of Satan, the exact opposite of that. (laughs) Victory over Satan and his demons. (laughs) Dang it. This sermon was ripping. (laughs) Look, if you're going to make neighbor's church home, this is the way it rolls. Victory over Satan. Victory over Satan. Victory over Satan and over his demons. Joshua and I are not mathematicians nor English majors. We are theologians. Dan, you're 36. You're not 37. Changed my life for a whole year. 20, 25 years ago, January 1st, 1998, I got on my knees in a garage in Hazleton, Idaho, drunk, drugged up, demonized kid, fresh out of a psych ward, prayed this stupid prayer. Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Forgive me of all my sins. And I'm telling you, Something died, like I died there in him, and I rose. I rose to new life. And every Easter rolls around, and this being the 25th, I can't tell you how overwhelmed I am and hopeful for the church. I'm so hopeful for millennials. I'm so, so excited for Gen Z. I am so excited for this community of Christians who have allowed deconstruction to take them down to bedrock, and they're like, you've, you've landed where I've landed. Like, crap, I can't get out of this. I can't get out of Christianity. Nothing else is going to make sense. But beyond that, what I'm most excited for is this war-torn world to see humans rising up with a hope, like remembering reality. So like this week, when you go back to work, or you go into your schools, and you go into your places of labor and career and study and friendship and family. You go with a reality that has changed. It's changed everything. It's just changed everything. And the more that you will allow the perennial longings of your heart to be met in the death and in the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, the more smooth your death is going to be when it finally arrives. At the end of the day, my whole life is committed to preparing you for a good death. That's it. I want you to die well. I want you to die now to the falseness of your flesh and the lies of this world and the deception of Satan. And I want you to rise. I want you to rise with real power that we would know the resurrection power, this same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead, seating him at your right hand, far above all power, rule, and authority and dominion, world without end, generation after generation. Remember it happened. Remember what precedes it. 
never, never forget what it has accomplished. Because one day, sooner than you think, we will be standing for all of eternity with the King. And he will be saying, well done, faithful and chosen. And we will stand over a cosmos, recreated, made new, that we will benevolently serve as rulers, as always intended by our God.